thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We've seen more data associating ADHD with sleep disorders, and many experts believe that a sleep assessment should be performed routinely in these patients. Is it all about insufficient sleep and sleep patterns? Or are there polysomnographic differences that may identify those who are at risk of ADHD? Can poor sleep in early childhood predict a diagnosis of ADHD in adolescence? Dr. Jessica Lunsford Avery is here today to share her research in this field and to help us understand the relationship between childhood sleep and adolescent ADHD. Dr. Lunsford Avery is an associate professor and licensed clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. She specializes in empirically supported evaluation and treatment of psychiatric and behavioral disorders across a lifespan. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So tell me about your research. So my broad research program focuses on the relationships between sleep, psychiatric health, and cognition in children and adolescents, and I have a particular interest in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Oh, so tell me more about that. Yeah, so we recently actually concluded a five-year study that used ambulatory polysomnography to examine group differences in sleep physiology between medication-free adolescents with ADHD and healthy controls. What is the difference? between the controls of the adolescents with ADHD. So, and I, and maybe I back up because in my mind, I kind of think this is insufficient sleep and schedule and stuff like that. But what is the difference? Yeah, so it's really interesting because I think often when we do think about sleep in adolescents, we're thinking about sleep duration or sleep mm. deprivation. And actually in ADHD, we don't necessarily see consistency consistent differences in things like total sleep time or wake after sleep onset. And actually, what my study found in others is um, that really that's, that's not there to the extent that maybe we assume that it is. Interesting. In, yeah. So instead, uh, what we see are differences in sleep architecture and physiology. So in our study, the adolescents with ADHD spent less time in deep, slow-wave sleep and had lower relative delta power. And they spent more time in lighter stage two sleep and had relatively higher sigma power than healthy control. Oh, wow. Can sleep architecture then predict behavior in general? Yeah. So I think we do know a lot about that from the insomnia literature, right? Mm. So there have been studies um, that I've worked on and my colleagues have where we've really tried to understand kind of what is it within the sleep architecture and physiology that predict next day functioning. And we've often focused on cognition. And what we found is that the most powerful predictor of next day cognition is the dynamics of delta power overnight. Wow. Okay. So tell me more. Is that, is that also sort of um, executive function? Is it mood? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, you know, we think about kind of maybe specifically what those delta dynamics might be. So for listeners of your podcast, um, most will know that in a typical sleep period, delta power peaks at the beginning of the night and steeply declines over the sleep period. And this reflects the accumulation and dissipation of sleep pressure. And what my colleagues and I have done um, within individuals with insomnia is we've looked to see you know, what are the best EEG predictors of next day cognition? 
And really what we see is that when individuals have a lower initial delta power peak and a flatter slope overnight, they tend to have worse cognition the next day. Oh, so is that in general or for people with ADHD? So this is one of our major questions with this study is we actually want to see whether a similar process might impact cognition in adolescents ADHD. And indeed, what we found was that reductions in the overall amount of delta power, as well as a flatter decline in delta power overnight, were associated with cognition in this group as well. Huh. So how much of this is um, sort of nature versus nurture, right? Like how much of this is biological versus maybe behavioral? Yeah. So that's a great question with probably not a super straightforward <laughs> answer. Um, but you know, there is a lot happening with sleep during adolescence. So Mary Scadden coined the term the perfect storm to describe sleep changes in this age group because a lot is going on biologically and a lot is going on behaviorally that interferes mm. with sleep. And it may be that some of these things are exacerbated in ADHD. Interesting. So is that kind of like what we see in insomnia then? Yeah. So I think, um, I think it probably is. So, you know, normatively, adolescents have a slower buildup of homeostatic sleep drive as they mature. And their slow wave sleep declines. And so it could be that for adolescents with ADHD, these processes are even more pronounced. So maybe they even have a greater deficiency in the buildup of homeostatic sleep drive, or they have more hyperarousal that's interfering with it. So there could be a biological basis, um, which could be similar to some of the processes that we see in insomnia. However, we also know, um, and for anyone out there who's listening who has adolescents, they <laughs> also exhibit a lot of sleep interfering behaviors. Um, so a lot of late night electronics use and caffeine use. And interestingly, youth with ADHD have even more difficulties with those behaviors. So certainly there could be a behavioral part here as well. Mm. So is it the ADHD and arousal that leads to less slow wave sleep? Or is it the sort of less slow wave sleep that causes ADHD? Right. So, you know, at this time, we don't know the direction of causation. And, and my work to date has been cross-sectional. Mm. My guess is that it's bi-directional. And the way that I see that, you know, I think um, on one hand, we understand from the literature the importance of slow-wave sleep for restoration. Mm. So certainly possible that slow-wave sleep is resulting in ADHD clinical features, including poor cognition. However, on the other hand, we know that behaviors related to ADHD may also impact slow-wave sleep. Well, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yes, a good example of this might be, um, we know that youth with ADHD on average engage in less physical activity compared to their non-ADHD peers. Hmm. And, you know, maybe because, you know, there's, in order to engage in physical activity, there's, there's planning, there's organization, um, there are aspects of ADHD that can interfere with it. We also know that physical activity exercise is important for slow-wave sleep. So my guess is there's a vicious cycle here. I didn't realize that about kids with ADHD, that they participated in sports less than those without. I didn't realize that. Yeah, on, or on average, just have lower physical activity. Yeah. You know, you mentioned how adolescents, right, it's hard to get them to get off their electronics and to go to bed and that this may be harder with kids who have ADHD. Um, what about like earlier 
the kids who have this sort of bedtime resistance and and where my brain is going with this is how can you how do you figure out if this is oppositional right like i don't want to go to bed or if maybe they have delayed sleep phase and they don't have enough sleep pressure and they are trying to kind of do effectively the right thing by going to bed when they're tired like how do you untangle that so <laughs> the bad news is you know right now when a child with ADHD is having trouble going to sleep we don't yet have a great way to determine the cause mm. so the root could be a biological sleep problem as you're describing with delayed sleep phase or insufficient sleep pressure or it could be a symptom related to the disorder, such as oppositionality. And right now, we really just don't have biological measures that can be used at a population level to conclusively determine that for any individual child. But I think the good news is that behavioral sleep strategies can be helpful, kind of regardless of the cause. So when kids are having difficulty going to bed, um, maybe for multiple of these reasons, biological, behavioral, or both, we know that specific behavioral strategies, things like setting a regular sleep-wake time, consistent bedtime routine, for the really little ones creating reward charts for bedtime compliance, Mm. and considering bedtime fading. These can be helpful with these struggles. Oh, so tell me more about bedtime fading. Is that sleep restriction? Yeah. So bedtime fading is a term that we use in behavioral interventions for younger children. Okay. And just like sleep restriction, it reduces time in bed by temporarily moving bedtimes later to align with the child's current sleep onset. So really with that goal of increasing sleep pressure. And then once that child is falling asleep within 15 minutes, the bedtime can be gradually moved up um, to ensure that they're also getting adequate duration because we know that's also important for daytime functioning. Oh, so do you get pushback from parents when you suggest that? Um, Certainly, uh, certainly can. Um, You know, I think... The buy-in from parents is that often, you know, when the child is having difficulty falling asleep, um, the parent, you know, it's really taking a lot of a toll on the parent, right? Because the child is maybe upset, they're asking for additional uh, bathroom breaks, or Mm. they're asking for additional hugs. And so, you know, really, you know, even if the kid is going to bed at eight o'clock and, you know, going to sleep at 10, those two hours the parents are engaging with the child, but it tends to be in somewhat of a negative way, right? Um, and so I think the buy-in for parents is like, look, look we're going to take the fight out of this between 8 and 10. We're going to have the child do something quiet. Mm. Um, you're not going to be fighting this battle. Let's move it back to 10. We educate about the sleep pressure. It's going to be high. Sleep onset latency is going to be shorter. And then also letting the parents know we have the goal of moving it back up. Mm. So it's not forever. This is uh, something we know works. And in the short term, it can be hard. But in the long term, this has major benefits. Huh. So you told me once that we should think about ADHD as a 24-hour disorder. What do you mean by that? So up to four out of five youth with ADHD have a sleep complaint. Oh, wow. To me, that really says sleep disturbances are the norm, not the exception. For these individuals. Hmm. So in terms of thinking about it as a 24-hour disorder, in the ADHD world, we are often focusing solely on improving daytime behaviors. So for example, taking stimulant medications to improve focus during school. But when children, four out of five children are also having sleep disturbances, mm. 
it's really unlikely that we're going to be successful in helping them reach their full potential if we're not also considering what's happening at night and helping them then as well. That's a really good point. You know, it kind of reminds me of some patients that I've had with um, narcolepsy who take their stimulant Mm -hmm. late um, or IH or something or ADHD and they take their stimulant late, but they actually sleep better because their brain turns off. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's a great point. And it is interesting, the um, the literature looking at stimulants and sleep in ADHD, it's, it's pretty complex. Um, so there's some individuals who <laughs> have kind of adverse uh, side effects that impact their sleep from stimulants. Some actually do better when they take their stimulants and have better sleep. Um, and so that's actually a that's actually a really great observation and an important <laughs> thing for us to, to really try to be understanding so we're giving the right recommendations to individuals. Well, and that's it, right? Like it can't be prescriptive. It really has to be personalized for the person in front of you and to be receptive to these ideas like you're talking about, to consider not just a daytime component of ADHD, but sort of reverse engineer it and look at what the night looks like and how can we optimize you know, the night. Um, Jeff Dermer said once that, we should think about sleep not as the end of our day, but as the beginning of our next day. And I thought that was a really cool way of looking at it. Oh, I love that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> yeah, you have to credit him for it. I didn't come up with it. <laughs> so let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the relationship between childhood sleep and adolescent ADHD. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Create customizable practice exams with a new sleep cues, Board Review 2.0. Pulling from over 350 questions, this product allows you to tailor exams to best fit your needs. When you're ready, complete and pass a self-assessment exam to earn five continuing education credits. This product can be used again and again, reshuffling the questions to allow you to gain confidence and best prepare for your sleep medicine exam. Visit learn.asm.org to purchase. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Lunsford Avery about sleep and ADHD. Do you think that there are more sleep disorders? You know, you mentioned four out of five kids with ADHD have a sleep complaint. So do you think there's more like sleep apnea and insomnia in this population? Yeah, there there absolutely are more sleep disorders uh, (laughs) reported. That rates are higher in ADHD. Um, So just the two that you mentioned, um, obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia um, certainly occur in higher rates in ADHD, also circadian rhythm disorders Mm. as well. And, you know, what's really interesting is that we know when these things are comorbid, when ADHD is occurring with a sleep disorder, we know that outcomes are worse. Mm. Um, So those adults tend to have um, more severe ADHD symptoms. They tend to have more comorbid mood problems. Um, so the sleep piece really does impact the clinical picture as a whole for those kids. What about narcolepsy and IH? So to be honest, I actually know a little bit less about narcolepsy. Um, I will say in our, in my sample of adolescents with ADHD, we, they do tend to report more daytime sleepiness. Huh. So it would be really interesting to potentially tease that out, what that may be due 
too. But um, well, for my very non-scientific <laughs> perusal of Twitter, um, yeah. there are a lot of people that have narcolepsy or IH and kind of talk about this attention, um, this ADHD component. And is that really something that we need to examine better? in our patients who have hypersomnolence. So it's, it's always sort of given me food for thought when I think about how we, you know, how we focus on our patients and, and which endpoints are important to them, right? Like we know right. that we have this medication for this purpose, but if that isn't as important to our patient, we really, I think, need to have that conversation with the patient, say, well, what, you know, what, outpoint, what, what outcomes are, are important to you, you know, personally? Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And as I'm thinking about your question about narcolepsy, you know, I think one piece that is really important to take away from this is when we think about the symptoms of ADHD, these are things like difficulties with focus, it's forgetfulness, mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, difficulties with um, time management, it's um, rest, just restless or agitated feeling. And for many of the symptoms of ADHD, if I were to draw a Venn diagram, and I have ADHD <laughs> on one side, and I have sleep disorders on the other, including things like narcolepsy. Mm. A lot of those symptoms are in the middle of that. Venn absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there's so much overlap there. And I think often, um, you know, whether ADHD is completely comorbid or there's just aspects of it there, those are symptoms that people are wanting treated. These are symptoms yeah. that are distressing. And we see it all the time in clinic, right? Somebody comes in and they're already on a stimulant for ADHD. And then, you know, the workup reveals some other, you know, central disorder of hypersomnolence. So it's, it's just something I've been, you know, thinking about more. And, um, and again, it kind of comes down to really not having blinders on, right? Right. Yeah. So how should we use all of this information? You know, I'm thinking about what you said about the parents and that negative interaction that they have maybe while the, while a child is trying to go to bed. Um, so I'm thinking about how we extrapolate earlier. So should we be asking about sleep earlier than when they have ADHD? So my short answer to that, Seema, is absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I 100% believe we should be asking about sleep early in life, uh, particularly in young children who even at an early age are exhibiting some behavioral concerns. Mm. And so a little bit earlier, we were talking about my study of adolescents with ADHD. Mm -hmm. Well, in that study, we actually asked parents um, to reflect back on sleep problems during the toddler and preschool years for these adolescents. Oh, very early. Okay. Yes. So we asked very early and parents reported on things like difficulties with bedtime resistance, which you mentioned a couple minutes ago, mm. restless sleep, difficulty falling asleep and night awakenings. And what was really interesting is that the parent report of these sleep challenges early in life was associated with the sleep physiology differences that we saw in the adolescent. No way. So the reductions in slow wave sleep, the reduced delta power. And so to me, that suggests that, you know, there's certainly limitations <laughs> to that methodology, but to me, that suggests, you know, really these sleep problems are likely starting early in life. And we really have a missed opportunity if we're not assessing and treating sleep then, because we know that sleep patterns, you know, they do persist mm. over life. So if we can do it early, I think, you know, we have a chance not just to change the 
trajectory of sleep problems, but also potentially to really reduce the severity of ADHD over time. Wow, that's profound. Obviously, more work needs to be done. <laughs> um, but I, I really think there's an opportunity there um, to, to really impact uh, the trajectory of some of these things. Okay, so that's interesting, though, right? Because we're not the ones seeing them at that age. Right. We only see them when there is a sleep issue or or something else. So, so how how does a maybe like a typical pediatrician how do they ask about sleep? Yeah, so I think this is evolving. So previous research has really suggested that traditionally pediatricians have focused on questioning generally about sleep concerns, like you know, is the parent concerned about sleep? Or if there's a specific aspect of sleep assessed, it's usually sleep duration. So asking about the number of hours. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So it does make sense. Because if you think about like, there are pretty clear age-based guidelines for sleep duration approved by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So if families report something outside of those, there's really a clear suggestion that pediatricians can then communicate to their family. Mm. So is it that we need to help the, you know, with more guidance and how to help them ask better questions because we can't just expect them to, you know, go into this really, really deep sleep history. Right. Yeah. So so I think there's a couple important things here. So I've actually recently, as part of my research, been talking to a lot of pediatricians Mm. and I think what comes out to me is, you know, these are physicians that are aware that sleep health is complex And they also know that sleep is important to health. Mm. But I think the challenge is that, as you just mentioned, it's hard to comprehensively assess sleep in a brief primary care appointment. These are 20 minutes. And these are appointments where they're also asking about a range of health behaviors. Right. So I think that's one challenge. I think another challenge is it can then be difficult for pediatricians, you know, if they do a a more in-depth sleep assessment, then it can be difficult to know what's the follow-up for families, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what should they recommend and how can they connect families to these services in an accessible way? Yeah. And I think that's really important, right? Because it's one thing to ask the question, but if it doesn't do anything, if it doesn't lead to anything, if it's not actionable, then, you know, what's the point of asking the question? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really important point. So <clears throat> Thinking about questions, you know, we have brief screeners for sleep problems in kids. You know, mm. so you've got Judy Owens' Bears assessment, which queries, you know, short, it queries bedtime problems, excessive daytime sleepiness, nighttime wakings, regularly in duration of, regularity and duration of sleep, and snoring. It's, it's brief. Um, you know, I think it's, it's something that could give, a pre, you know, a good signal mm-hmm. of the specific sleep problems that are being experienced by these kids. But then I think the, the other point, you know, how do we then make this easier right. for pediatricians? Yes. Um, and there, I think the challenge is really incorporating the sleep screenings into the current visit procedures um, in pediatric primary care. Mm. So an example that might be, you know, now we have electronic health records. Could this information be sent remotely to families before they come in and then just reviewed, you know, briefly if there is a signal? in that 20 minutes, but where the pediatrician isn't having to ask mm. in a short time period where they've already got a lot to do. I think an additional point is that, you know, if we are really streamlining sleep assessments into pediatric primary care, 
I think as a field, we're going to have to have really clear resources and recommendations that are attached so that when the sleep issues are identified, the pediatricians know what to do. They know what to offer families and things that are both empirically based, but also accessible. And I think we still have some work to do yeah. <laughs> to develop really accessible sleep interventions for young yeah. kids. I agree. I think that's the hardest part, right? We've talked about how to democratize sleep health. And maybe part of it is is partnering with our pediatricians, but also putting out more, like that screener you talked about, maybe putting that out more in a public realm. Right. You know, because a lot of uh, parents are really, um, you know, tech savvy, and they are very interested in, in trying to help their kiddos. Yeah, it's interesting, because I've also been talking to caregivers of um of young kids. And I think that, you know, there is a real appetite for information around sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard to figure out, you know, what information is correct, because there's so much out there now, you know, Mm -hmm. on TikTok, on various social media. (laughs) And sometimes it's really hard for parents to to, to figure out, like, what is the good information or what should I be bringing? Um, You know, what should I be bringing to the forefront? And so, again, I think as a field, um, communicating that information to parents is going to be really critical. So if I am, you know, if I have an adolescent in my clinic with ADHD, what Mm -hmm. behavioral sort of sleep behavioral intervention should I be recommending? Yeah. So I think it depends a little bit on, let's say we've done that brief screening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think it depends a a little bit on on what comes up. Um, So, you know, if certainly if there's a concern about snoring, we might think about starting with a sleep study, if it seems to be more of this delayed circadian phase um, or difficulties falling and staying asleep, then we might think about behavioral interventions such as um, CBTI or trans-C. Or, I mean, I think there certainly are some kids with ADHD who are actually sleep deprived. So mm. they're, they're, they're not having any difficulties falling or staying asleep, um, but they're just not giving themselves enough hours. And so in those cases, we might really be thinking more about um, extending the sleep period for those, for those kids. Can we do CBTI? Yeah, so we certainly can. And I think many kids with ADHD would benefit from CBTI. I will say the literature is not very extensive in this area. Mm. So to date, um, you know, I'm really aware of one study, um, Stephen Becker's group out of Cincinnati piloted TRANS-C, so behavioral intervention, with adolescents with ADHD. And they, they actually had really good results in the pilot trial. Um, so TRANS-C not only improved sleep, but it also improved attention and executive functioning. And these were sustained um, at, at three months. So we have a really good kind of initial signal mm. that this can, this can be useful, but we need we need replication here. What does TRANS-C stand for? So TRANS-C is a behavioral intervention on transdiagnostic sleep and circadian concerns. Mm. And so it combines a couple of different behavioral interventions. So first is CBTI and then chronotherapy and also social rhythm therapy. Mm. And the idea is that it's really targeting multiple aspects of sleep and circadian functioning to help that individual. And it's actually, there's different modules depending on what the individual's presenting with. So it's a flexible intervention in a lot of ways. Mm. 
So we, we recently chatted with Dr. Honecker and Dr. McQuillan about CBTI in adolescence. And, you know, they, they talked about how it probably needs to be tailored to this mm-hmm. age group. And so I'm wondering if there needs to be, like you're talking about, this other behavioral intervention that's tailored to adolescents with ADHD. Yeah, you know, I think a lot, you know, my guess is that a lot of the behavioral interventions as tailored for adolescents are going to be useful here. I think from the ADHD perspective, there's the considerations around the AD, like the sleep symptoms, mm. but there's also the considerations around the ADHD symptoms. So symptoms of ADHD can actually interfere with um, treatment engagement in general. And so we also, in addition to adapting it to adolescents, may have to think a little bit about how we would adapt it to those with ADHD. No, yeah, I think you're exactly right. So I was thinking about what you talked about um, with the changes in sleep that we see in childhood and mm-hmm. how those might predict a diagnosis of ADHD in adolescence. Does that pertain to adulthood too? So if you have an adult that's diagnosed with ADHD, is that just a late diagnosis? Is it a different thing? Um, or is there maybe something predictive about how they slept as a child? Yeah, so that is a great question. And I, I have a couple thoughts about it that I think might be important. Um, so the first is that adults with ADHD overwhelmingly report sleep problems. So they are at high risk for sleep disorders. Two out of three meet criteria for insomnia, half endorse significant fatigue, and about one in 10 meet criteria for restless leg syndrome mm. or sleep breathing disorders. So sleep problems are as common in adults with ADHD as in kids and adolescents. Wow. But I think this predictive piece is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So ADHD is an extremely heterogeneous disorder in terms of prognosis. So some children with ADHD um, have persistent ADHD symptoms throughout life. Some experience remittance and for many kind of waxes and wanes across the lifetime. Hmm. And then there's also, as you're mentioning, a group of individuals who seem to have late onset ADHD. So it seems to um, show up in the adolescent or young adult period for the Mm -hmm. first time. And we do not know right now the role of sleep disturbances in predicting those trajectories, but I think it's really important. And so I think future studies, if we can look at what is the role of sleep and persistence, what is it in late onset, how does it contribute to these individuals who really experience kind of a waxing and waning um, prognosis, I think sleep could play a role, but -hmm. I don't think we know what that role might be yet. You know, this this whole conversation makes me double down on this idea that sleep really shouldn't be siloed. You know, sleep really is foundational to our health. And, you know, for me, like I'm a pulmonologist. So when I have a patient with ADHD, I lean heavily on my colleagues who have expertise in that area. You know, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable enough to render that diagnosis. I don't have, you know, the testing mechanism in clinic. Um, but for sure, I've had patients in clinic that have not yet been diagnosed with ADHD uh, that have a sleep complaint as well. Um, and yeah. so it just it, it's this whole idea of collaboration, right? That right. I, that I do need to lean on my colleagues. And how can we do that? And how can we create you know that better in our field? So you've you know given us a lot to talk of to think about. Yeah, and I think that overlap is important both ways. 
you know, so it's this kind of idea that when we're assessing sleep, potentially looking for other things that may be going on. Um, so whether that's ADHD or in kids or mood or anxiety problems, um, but then also from the ADHD side, mm. um, when we think about diagnosing ADHD, you know, I don't think it's all that common that people are really thinking about a differential diagnosis with sleep disturbances either. Um, so that crosstalk um, between sleep and psychiatry, I think is really important. Because um, I think often this question of, is it ADHD? Is it a sleep disorder? Is it both? Mm. Um, I think kind of across fields, we could be doing a better job of talking to each other and asking and asking that question. Wow, that's a really important point. So any final thoughts? I think the message here is that we think about those Venn diagrams, there's a lot of overlap between attention and sleep. Mm. The more that we can do, especially early in the life, to be trying to capture risk for these things can have a potentially really big impact on on these kids' lives. Like, like so beyond ADHD symptoms, um, kids with ADHD are at risk for other kinds of things like mm. anxiety, mood, um, suicidality. Um, kids with ADHD are at risk for higher mortality, uh, sooner mortality. Um, and so I think the more that we can bring this early in life, we can figure out kind of how do we harness sleep as a way not just to improve potentially ADHD symptoms, but also some of these additional things that tend to happen for kids with ADHD, I think we're going to have a really big impact on kids' lives. Wow. Thanks for joining us today to help us better recognize how early sleep may predict ADHD in adolescents and how we should partner with our pediatric colleagues to help us all better assess the sleep of our pediatric patients. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.